All right, let's go back to here to mobility. All right, migrant farm worker families move a lot. It's not uncommon for a migrant family uh, to move maybe three, four, five times in a year. And I was just talking to Maureen. She's got a migrant. Kid, would you share where they've moved from and where they've gone? They are Mexican. Oh, they're from Mexico. They moved into Texas. They moved up to North Carolina. They moved to Georgia. And okay. now they're here. Now they're here. Now, can you explain a little bit of the difficulties that the migrant child is having because of these moves? Well, he has no, we, we talked about this in class, okay. he has no comprehension of right. what, he knows a little bit of English. Um, he's having trouble because sometimes he'll speak English and spit out a, a Spanish word and teacher reprimand him for that. So won't call on him because of that. So he's having a lot of problems in the class. Okay, so in general, micro families move quite a bit. Now, the connection here is, we mentioned, in general, the poorer you are, the more you move. The more you move, the poorer you are. Because it's so hard to keep up and then to pay the first month's rent and deposit. I get lots of calls from micro farmworker families that get up to Minnesota it's a 30-day waiting period for any new arrival in Minnesota to get any social services, if they're documented. So they're moving, the fields aren't ready, they're poor, they're sleeping in their vans. So the more the move, there's that connection there between mobility and poverty. And like I said, that Baltimore school had a two-thirds turnover rate. Okay, culture and language, I know that you've all been covering a lot about that. Obviously, you're going to have children in your classroom that may be non-native English speakers. If I can give you a recommendation for job prospects, for the those of you going on for your masters, you certainly want to consider if you want to secure or increase your chances for a job is to think about getting a master's in English as a second language. Um, one of the things that I like to tell people that, that work with children or non-native English speakers is you know as they're learning English, uh, they're going to make a fair amount of mistakes at the beginning. And I'm a non-native uh, Spanish speaker, that is. I'd like to share with you my story when I went over to Spain. If any of you understand Spanish, don't get the punchline out. But I, I can relate to what it's like to learn another language. In 1984, I went to Spain, and I was living with a family that spoke no English. And my first month, just as it is for non-native English speakers, was very, very difficult. Uh, I could not, I thought everybody spoke too fast. I was having a hard time understanding everything. And I was trying to talk to the mother of the family, and uh, I got very, very nervous. I got very anxious, and I wanted to tell her I was embarrassed. But I didn't know the word in Spanish for embarrassed. So the closest word I could think of was embarazada. Doesn't that sound like embarrassed? Embarazada? I said, yo soy embarazada. I told her I was pregnant. <laughs> and she says, Felipe, no es posible. <laughs> so my point is, is that as Marina's is finding out this one child, when you have children that are non-native English speakers, their oral skills will come faster than their academic. It's something to be very aware of. Apparently you're working with a teacher that's not that wise on ESL strategies. So the more you learn about ESL as you are in this class and your next one, the better off you're going to be as teachers, the better off you're going to be able to um, maneuver and revise your curriculum to help those students. Just because a student is speaking playground English 
Doesn't mean he's going to be able to do a third grade reader or a fourth grade math book. Things that you, for example, yo puedo hablar español suficiente, yo puedo tener una conversación como usted, and yo puedo leer un periódico. I can speak sufficiently and I can read a newspaper, but don't ask me to write an essay in Spanish and don't ask me to, uh, to read a 12th grade novel in Spanish. My oral skills are much more advanced than my reading my academic, and the same thing for non-native English speakers, okay? And as much as you can, try to celebrate the diversity of the cultures of your kids, all right? Uh, you'll have kids from many different cultures. We had a situation, I remember about 10 years ago, I was talking to some migrant advocates in Palm Beach County, and they were working with Haitian migrant families, and one of the things they found out was no matter what note they sent home with the child, the children were getting spanked when they got home, even if it was a good note. Unbeknownst to them, in the Haitian culture, any communication from the school back home was a negative thing, and it was a cultural thing. So, you know, just be aware of the different cultures that, that occupy your class. Right? Okay. Let's talk a little bit about health, then we're going to do something fun, and then we're going to go into immigration. Um, it's clear to me from the articles I've read and the kids I've worked with that apparently the health of kids these days is, is getting worse. One, because of diet, because of the amount of sugar that's in there. You are going to have children that have never been to a dentist, that have some severe dental problems. Just recently, two children had such severe dental problems that were untreated that they got an infection that went to the brain and they, were, and they died. Now this is true. You, when you read articles, always keep on top of health issues, especially with the dental. Because they're finding out there's a direct correlation between people's dental health and the rest of their health. And one thing that's occurring more and more is diabetes among the young. Now, I've had some migrant farm workers that have called me with untreated diabetes later on in life they lose their legs, they lose their circulation. It's a very debilitating disease. So how, what can you do in your classroom? Certainly, whatever curriculum you're offering, you need to start talking about proper nutrition, proper diet. Um, one of the things that migrant advocates do when they speak to migrant parents, and they say, how many of you serve, how many of you serve Coke to your kids? Oh, a bunch of them raise their hand. So the advocate takes a can of Coke, and then she takes like a glass filled with like sugar, half of it's filled with sugar. And they say to the parents, would you serve this to your kids like this? They go, no, I wouldn't serve all that sugar. Well, that's what you're doing when you serve a Coke can. So when you're working with poor parents who may not be as educated, being as concrete and visual is very, very powerful. Um, because then they get to see the correlation. And in your schools, I know that there are schools that are now taking their soda machines out, right? They, all that is good because right now, the kids these days are just eating way, way too many sweets. And dentists, the article I just read said dentists are completely overwhelmed. They're completely, they're, first of all, there's less dentists out there than there used to be. And they're having, they have more patients. So that's why establishing a relationship with a dentist or the dental clinic or doing hygiene with your kids, or if you could get if you can get a dental assistant to come in and, and do some cleanings with your kids in your classroom, 
or having toothbrushes in your classroom, having your kids brush, all those things are really going to help avoid major, major problems later on. Uh, I've got a migrant student out in Oregon now, and she's got some molar problems. I got the bill the other day, it's $4,000. Where do you get the money for that? So as advocates, knowing your, your dental services, all right? Um, I said, I said I've, got, um, I've got doctors in town that can help out. Sometimes there are free health clinics. There's one in, in Gainesville called the Acorn Clinic. Whatever services, whatever doctors that you can get. What, any, anybody seeing any other health issues in your classrooms besides the bathing and the cleaning? Well, I don't know if this is really so much a health, it's really not, I guess it would be more so like an abuse type. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a little boy and he, um, I guess he's adopted, I guess, like four other brothers or something. And he came to school one day and he had a big bandage mm -hmm. over his temple right here. And I was like, oh, what happened? And he said, um, he had already told the teacher that um, he, he got in trouble for something and his dad smacked him and he hit it edge of a coffee table and he had this like big well and I was like oh my gosh I was thinking no well we need to call somebody or do something mm -hmm. and um, I asked the teacher if she knew about it and you know she's real nice and yeah. caring and she was like yeah well he told me his dad he got in trouble and his dad smacked him and he hit the coffee table and I was like well do you think that's true and she was like oh yeah I'm sure it comes from you know a family of boys and I'm sure it's true but like didn't think anything of it and I was I was really concerned like well shouldn't we but I didn't want to impose on her. Yeah, you're in a so. tough, as Linda said, you're in a tough position. If that happened in your classroom, you may be legally uh, responsible for reporting that. That would be where you'd want to talk to the social worker, right. principal, some, somebody else. And a lot of times inaction happens just because people aren't quite sure what to do. Trust your gut, you know? Yeah. Your gut says this is really wrong, you know. Yeah, I, would, I, would just, yeah, I couldn't believe she was like, oh, yeah, sure, it's probably what happened. Well, there are laws about that. There are laws about that, and you will need to know those laws, and I'm sure you will get training before your teachers about what laws you have to follow. All right, what other resources are there for health services? One of the other resources that you need to know about, and this has been in the news lately, is CHIP. Children's Health Insurance Program. How many of you have been hearing about S-CHIP? Just one of you? All right, you have all got to start reading the newspaper. You have to keep up on these issues. This is a big issue that's going to affect you as teachers. CHIP is the Children's Health Insurance Program. And here's how it works. The government says that you are, if you're a family of four, you are poor if you make this amount of money or less. I always like to ask this question. The government says you're poor at what level of your family of four a year? What annual income do they say you're poor at? Hmm? 30,000. 30,000? 30, we got 30,000? Do I hear, what other bids? 25,000, 25, who said 20? 20, any others? One more? 50,000? Okay. 20,000 for a family of four. Just wait, this gets better. For a family of four. 
here's the deal on this. If you are documented, and we're going to get into the immigration issue a little later, if you're documented, and you make less than $20,000 a year, the family's eligible for Medicaid, which will pay for most of the health bills for uh, the kids and the family members, okay? Here's the problem. There are families that make more than $20,000. Well, they may make up to, say, $50,000. And you know what? They're still pretty poor. $25,000, $30,000 a year for a family of four? How many of you think that's being rich? That is not rich. So therefore, these families are not eligible for Medicaid. That's where CHIP comes in. CHIP provides health insurance for the kids of families that make too much for Medicaid, but not enough for their own private health insurance. I guarantee most of you in your classes, most of your kids, if you're especially if you're in a low income or even a middle income school, most of those families will not have health insurance. There's like 45 million Americans without health insurance in this country. That's why you need to know, whatever state you're in, what the CHIP phone number is. You need to contact, be speaking to your parents. Yes? What CHIP does is when a family applies, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know all the specifics, okay? I don't, but what CHIP does is it takes a family's application, looks at its income, and then it determines whether they're eligible for Medicaid. If they make less than 20, then they'll enroll them for Medicaid. If not, then they'll enroll them in the CHIP program, okay? And then they're eligible for, um, for vouchers and, and, and not to have to pay for certain medical services. I don't know what they all are. But they're pretty, pretty extensive, okay? But the thing what you need to do is, as a teacher is to find out about your CHIP program in your state and find out what the requirements are so that if you're an advocate to your kids, you try to educate your parents that there is these programs available. One of the things you'll find out with low-income families is very often they don't know about these programs. And they're out there. It's one of the problems that the government has. They claim we do a great job of publicizing it but these families just don't know about these programs. And you as an advocate can tell them, all right? You know, one thing, you may be sitting there thinking, oh my God, I don't even know how to teach a reading lesson yet. <laughs> I'm not real sure. And you want me to be a social worker too? <laughs> and, you know, once you get into the schools, you'll realize you'll develop a relationship right. with your students and with their parents. And you don't have to know everything there is to know about everything. And you don't have to do everything that needs to be done. Sometimes just being a source of information, right. just recognizing that a child has a need, and then talking to the school social worker about that need, I mean, that that can go such a long way. Really, I mean, you know, I hear stories every semester about when you go to do your case study, and, and the teacher, and we talked about this earlier, the teacher had a certain perception about a child, and in 15 minutes, you found out something about that child that the teacher didn't know because if the teacher has a full classroom full of kids and maybe just wasn't as tuned in. That's the kind of thing, I mean, the small things that you can do make a huge difference to people who have needs. And if kids are unhealthy and they're not eating and they're dirty, they're not learning. And so you may have the most brilliant reading lessons in the world, but the children won't be learning. And it, it doesn't take as much time as you think. Often it's just knowing somebody 
making that contact with the social worker, with the dentist, calling up. I've got relationships with mechanics in Hope, Arkansas. Hope, Arkansas, right? It's about halfway. And they have a, a migrant stopover, rest stop where the migrants stop, and they're always breaking down here. Well, I've met the mechanics out there, and I know them. So if I want to help out with a check from the foundation, they don't even need to wait for me. I just call them up and they say, hey, I said, I'm, uh, I understand you've got this family. Here's what I'm going to So it's all about relationships. And it, and it saves you a lot of time when you have those relationships. Now, also, low-income individuals are also eligible if they're documented. We'll get to that in a second. They might be eligible for food stamps. I have lots of migrant farm worker families on food stamps. WIC, which is the Women, Infants, and Children's Program for Pregnant Women. And also, some states have what's called AFDC, Aid for Families with Dependent Kids, or TANF. And what that does is it's for, basically, it's for women that don't have a husband or another support. They're of low income. They can get money from the government to help raise their kids, sometimes several hundred dollars a month. So I know this is a lot that I'm presenting you with right now, but I want you to be aware of what programs are out there. You should have a little folder with some information on it that you can refer to families. These kinds of things, while well, we're looking at them in the context of migrant families, um, oh, they're good for really low-income children come all, from all backgrounds. So it's just a, it's a good thing to know, to know that these kinds of services are available. Now here's the big debate that's going on with President Bush about S-CHIP, which is the National CHIP Program. And this is why it's important for you that you need to stay on top of your newspaper on education issues like your kids. Congress, especially the Democrats, wanted to increase funding for S-CHIP by about $35 billion, which would have enrolled four more million children who are not getting services by CHIP. And President Bush vetoed it. All right, he said, no. He says, we don't have the money at this point. So the only way that this legislation could get passed was for Congress to override it. That means they needed two-thirds of a vote to override the veto. They didn't get that. So just in today's paper, Congress is trying to come up with another bill to try to, uh, to, try to get this override. All right, but basically what that means is that four million children who could have been eligible not eligible. So those are the kind of debates that are that are important to, to understand. Any any questions on this on the health issues right here? All right. Okay. I just yes. have a comment. Um, the Florida health insurance is mm. called Florida Healthy Kids. Right. Uh, you may not recognize Good. this chip. Okay. Um, so I know my children they get that sent home. Okay, good. So she gets information, the school sends that home? They do. They send it home in the beginning of the year, usually, and it's in Spanish. Good. And English. And English. Good. Okay. Important to have those available. 